From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, we speak with senior fellow from the Hoover Institution, Dr. Victor Davis Hanson, about the plight of fake news. And following that conversation, Daniel Bynum, senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, joins us to discuss the Trump administration's seven foreign policy assumptions. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Seems that fake news has become an unfortunate hallmark within the current public discourse. If we the people cannot trust what is written or spoken by those representing the fourth of state, what does it say about America's democratic republican form of government? My first guest has some definitive thoughts on the subject of fake news. Dr. Victor Hansen is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute in Palo Alto, California. He recently penned an op-ed on the subject that can be found on the Hoover Institute's website. Dr. Hansen, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. For the purpose of this discussion and the piece that you wrote uh, on the Hoover Institution website, how are you defining the term media? Media, well, traditionally and uh, more recently in a non-traditional manner, it's print journalism talk radio or radio news, uh, and then obviously television, and then also uh, the media, Hollywood, entertainment, Nexus, John Stewart, things like that mm-hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. So there's been blending or Hollywood commentary as well. And uh, so that's traditionally the media, and then when we use the word mainstream media, I would say that the more elite or prominent of those organs, whether it's the New York Times, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, National Public Radio, PBS, ABC, NBC, that has the majority of the audience, and they, they tend to think in a particular and predictable way. Mm-hmm. Is it part of the problem, uh, from, from your perspective, that, because you just gave a very coherent, succinct response when I, when I posed the question, but depending on whom you ask, the definition of media differs in our, in our discourse. Do you see it that way? Well, everything differs, but there are facts and there are empirical ways of determining those facts. So what I just gave you, I think, was empirical. And whether you describe, I think the key is not the media. Everybody agrees that that's the media. But when you add the adjective mainstream, that tends to suggest that these are establishment media. And then I would also say alternative media, and that would be things like uh, Rush Limbaugh's talk show or Michael Savage or Laura Ingram's talk show or Sean Hannity on Fox News or The Daily Caller or Drudge on the Internet. Mm-hmm. So, and they don't, they think, that, I mean, they're, they're new, and they're, but they don't have the audience, nor do they have the... Um, 
the the establishment aura of the mainstream media. Now, the, the title of the piece that you recently penned that can be uh, found on the Hoover Institute uh, website, uh, entitled "Fake News: Postmodernism by Another Name." How widespread is fake news in your view, sir? Well, I, I don't know quite why it's uh, considered new. I think it's it's pretty old, actually. And, and in some of the cases that I cited, like the Tawana Brawley case, uh, that goes back 25 years. So I think there's, you have to, people say fake news and then they apply it. It's the latest round is started again by the left in the connection with Donald Trump because of his misstatements and distortions. But when Bill Clinton says, I didn't have sex with that woman, or, Bill, or Donald Trump cites a statistic that's obviously wrong, or Barack Obama says 10,000 people died in a tornado in Kansas. That's what politicians do. They either can't remember things and they make things up, or they spin, or they distort. That's politics. But that's different from a news story that's knowingly false, but seen to advance a particular agenda. For example, Eric Holder's Justice Department found out I think after extensive investigations that Michael Brown, the deceased in the Ferguson case, never said hands up, don't shoot. Mm-hmm. We, we know that now. And yet we had people on mainstream radio shows putting their hands up. Uh, these were anchor people. We had people coming into Congress with their hands up. We had Beyonce at a halftime of the Super Bowl resonating that, that meme. So... It was felt by the mainstream media, let's not go back and uncover the truth because there's a larger truth, a socially constructed truth, that minorities are at the mercy of police, and this helps channel. We all know that George Zimmerman is no more a white Hispanic than Barack Obama is a white African-American. We never use that term with it, Barack Obama. But the media was worried that George Zimmerman, who could have easily been called Jorge Mesa, that's his mother's maiden name, and he could have Latinized his name, that they wanted a white-black dichotomy, just like they wanted him to be a racist, so they edited, in the case of um, NBC and CNN, they edited the 911 tape, and they photoshopped his picture after the assault and the altercation, because they felt that the larger truth was that a white vigilante was preying on a poor African-American teenager whose picture often appeared as 13 or 12 in a football uniform. So that's what false news is, the Duke Lacrosse, the Virginia uh, University of Virginia rape case, Mathis Grill at Columbia. I'm not saying that it's confined to the world, but because it has a greater megaphone in the mainstream media and because it has this ideology that... Its ends are more noble, being fraternity, equality, and egalitarianism. Then it feels that it can use any means necessary to advance them. And, and, that's, and that's because you. I'm sorry, sir. That's because you're, you're as you started out. You're differentiating the mainstream versus what one might um, consider the alter, alternative alternative media. It's the, yeah. it's well, the, the alternative media is a reactive media. I mean, they have their own idiosyncratic investigations, et cetera, et cetera. But basically they exist in antithesis of the mainstream media. So if you go to those sites or you go to Fox News or you go to listen to Western but what are they talking about? Almost they're obsessed with trying to, in their view, correct the mainstream media. The mainstream media usually does not attack 
think, I mean, Barack Obama attacked Sean Hannity constantly, but usually they advance these narratives because they have much greater influence and reach. And then the alternative media grew up as a way of, as they saw it, correcting these fake news or these narratives that were not accurate, such as an epidemic of shooting of African-American youth uh, at epidemic proportions, which is not sophisticated, as Southern McDonald pointed out, supported by data, but it made a compelling news story, and it spawned the whole Black Lives Matter movement. But uh, like the Ferguson, don't ha- hands up, don't shoot, it was not based on empirical fact. It just wasn't. I'm going to uh, read a, a, a portion of what you wrote in, in the, uh, the piece that uh, for the reason we had you on, sir. Uh, you wrote, quote, The New York Times' uh, Jim Ruddenberg and CNN's Christine Anamapur confessed that they could not be fair in reporting the news in the era of Donald Trump. Apparently, being fair had become tantamount to being co-conspirator, co-conspirator in Trump falsity. The New York Times, in a post-election op-ed, explained why it missed the Trump phenomenon, admitting but not necessarily lamenting that its own coverage of the election had not been fair and balanced. What's underneath that for you when you were, when you were writing that? Well, I'll give you an example, just to take one example. Glenn Thrush, who wrote for Politico, wrote a story about Hillary Clinton. So then he sent it to the Podesta group, Podesta campaign guru of Hillary, and he said, would you please proofread this? and see if anything is objectionable, basically. And then he said, please don't tell anybody what I'm doing because I would be a hack. That was his words, not mine. But then he published it. And then after the campaign was over, he was promoted by the New York Times uh, and is hired now as a Washington correspondent. In fact, has a piece in the paper today. Or Donna Brazil, who's a CNN commentator, basically bragged to the Podesta people that she had debate questions in advance, not singular, but plural, and temporarily stepped down as a DNC, but she is now commenting on the morality of the Trump presidency. So I guess what I'm saying is that there are a lot of people who the WikiLeaks archives revealed are not traditional journalists as we know them. I write opinion journalism, but I don't call up Donald Trump's people. I don't call up um, Ted Cruz's in the campaign and say, you, see, you think this is okay? And if anybody calls me from that campaign, I don't discuss strategy with them. I've had people from both sides call, but I never say, you should do this. I can say that in print as an opinion, but I don't go and back channels and be part of an election machine. And we found out that that's what a lot of journalists were doing. Lots of them. This was not new because we had journalist that Ezra Klein had done four years ago. There were journalists in that group that were talking about how to advance the Obama agenda. After all, we we haven't had anybody in the media say that Trump is a god, as happened uh, in the case of Obama. We haven't said anybody the smartest man ever to enter the presidency, as had with Michael Bessos coming on Obama. But nobody said his crease Pants crease is so perfect he's going to be a great president, or that he took a tingle. These are all mainstream media people who, in the case of Obama, sacrificed all disinterested commentary, and they signed on in the euphoria of open change. And uh, they I, never paid a price for it. 
I, I don't know if it quite falls into the same category, but I do recall, I think it was 1980, that uh, George Will with the Washington Post helped yes, that's uh, a good example. Oh, no, that's a very good example. And he did pay a price for that, though. He, people, and then the reason that he didn't Why don't you tell the story so, so people may not know. Why don't you go ahead and just give us a Reader's Digest yeah. of that story? Well, in 1980, George Will volunteered to play Jimmy Carter in a mock debate uh, in advance of their only debate of that campaign season. And then he initially was quiet about that. I think very improper. You'd like to bring that up. Behavior. What saved him from greater disdain or ostracism was people in the Carter campaign and also accused him of having the Carter uh, debate prep book, which was not true. So then... And then Carter personally attacked Will for that. He should have attacked him for participating with the Reagan uh, team and then writing op-eds about the campaign, which is not, not ethical. But they overstepped, and in fact, Will did not have access to the campaign and did not steal the book, as I recall. So it was sort of a wash, but that was an unethical thing to do. I mean, if somebody called me up after I write for National Review of the Chicago Tribune and said, would you be willing to play, um, I don't know, somebody in the Clinton campaign to prep Trump, I'd say, no, how can you write about a candidate when you're, in fact, helping them? If you're, just, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution in Palo Alto, California. And we're speaking about a piece that Dr. Hansen recently wrote on fake news that can be found on the Hoover Institution's website. Uh, I'm going to go back. You also wrote, sir, uh, quote, it's largely a media-driven and deliberate attempt to spread a false narrative to advance a political agenda that would otherwise be rejected by a common-sense public. Um, my question would be, how can you be sure that uh, it's deliberate? Well, let's take the case of the Virginia um, case where Rolling Stone reporter met somebody who said she was essentially ganged or repeatedly raped by a fraternity. And in that process of investigation, she quickly determined that, quote-unquote, Jackie, the person, did not have a narrative that was sustainable and could be cross-checked. And yet Rolling Stone went ahead with that story because they felt that the larger truth that fraternities and indeed people on campus oppressed women was worth it without checking the facts. And then she also mischaracterized people in the Virginia administration who sued her successfully and Rolling Stone. Another example, the Duke lacrosse case. I think it was very clear that... Talk about that case. Tom, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, sir, but just talk about the case in case, you know, we're dating people who may not be familiar with it. Just give us a, a Reader's Digest of that one again. I think please. it was in 2006 where some Duke lacrosse players uh, had a party and they invited a stripper, the, two strippers. One came and then alleged that she had been raped by some of the lacrosse players. The district attorney used that as a cause celeb to punish supposedly entitled, privileged, preppy lacrosse players who took advantage of, of an impoverished person of color. Once that narrative was established and found useful, then members of the Duke academic community signed petitions demanding that the, 
but the team be disbanded, which it was, the coach be fired, who was, and the people supposedly guilty of that crime were suspended uh, from school. And then the college president and the DA, then the DA started to uh, proceed with charges. Well, very quickly it came out that the DNA, there was no DNA evidence that would corroborate her story. The DNA that was found on her was from somebody else. There, the other stripper immediately began to contradict her story. Her own internal uh, testimony was found to be uh, not credible. So then the DA not only had to drop the case, but then he was fired and disbarred. And Duke then had to apologize and reinstate the players. They were sued and settled out of court. But the point I'm making is that that whole narrative caught on fire, and the academic community never apologized because it filled various narratives. One is that white, privileged young men will take advantage of people of color. Another is that women are vulnerable on campus and that traditional laws of due process sometimes must be ignored because there's a greater good to protect the innocent. And that narrative then supersedes the individual facts of the case. We saw we just saw it the other day with Donald Trump when we were told that by BuzzFeed that he had gone to a hotel in in the Soviet former Soviet Union in Moscow, Russia, had sort of debauched sex with women in order to defile the bed in which Barack Obama had stayed while his personal lawyer met in Prague. BuzzFeed said they couldn't determine whether that was actually true or not, but they wanted to put it out there. It's an ancient Greek concept called praetoradia, it's a Greek uh, declamation. In other words, you said, as far as my opponent, the fact that he's an illegitimate rapist, I, I don't want to say that that's true or false, so I'm just going to put it out there. It's a rhetorical fallacy. That's what they did. And we learned that Michael Cohen had never been to Prague. And that was demonstrably provable. And there, were no, there was no evidence that Donald Trump ever did that. And yet it was out there. And why was it out there? Why did BuzzFeed run it? Because they felt that it served a social, socially desirable goal. I'll give you an example. I write opinion journalism two columns a week. When Obama ran for office... There's a lot of, I would say, unreliable people out there who trafficked in very scurrilous stories about Barack Obama, his private life, his sexual life, and colonists would get them unsolicited and said, you have to write about this. And uh, I could have written a column saying, I can't justify whether this is true or not, I can't support it, but it should be out there. And then I would say this is that would be fake news because I was doing that because even if it was true or false, it advanced a better narrative. And that was the same thing with Donald Trump and the Bursher controversy. There was no empirical evidence that Obama had not been born in the United States. And yet just pursuing it and putting it out there tended was an effort to make him illegitimate. You and mentioned but I'm sorry. Go ahead, sir. I'm sorry. No, that's what people. That's what fake news is. You, you you mentioned BuzzFeed. I want to touch on that because if we if I take your initial uh, definition, uh, depending on who's listening, one may or may not conclude that BuzzFeed is part of the mainstream media, but yet uh, furthering um, your your, your the, the narrative that you 
proposed, they put out um, uh, information uh, that could not uh, be sourced by a single source, let alone they couldn't, you know, uh, multiple sources without a single source. Um, but that also gets, now I would say, I always put my cards on the table, I would say that violates all ethics of journalism, but, but, is, but BuzzFeed sort of um, straddles that fence, and that seems to blur the line. So I think that's fake news. Well, I don't think it straddles any fence. They admittedly said that they could not verify this story. In fact, it fell apart almost immediately upon publication because even people that were not journalists, amateur people on the Internet, quickly found con uh, contradictions. It didn't take all BuzzFeed would have had to do was call Michael Cohen and say, are you the Michael Cohen that went to Prague, mm -hmm. as we allege in the story? And he would say no, and they'd say prove it, and he could just send his passport. Or they could have checked with the State Department. He could have allowed them to uh, trace his whereabouts on that particular date. But they didn't even take that minimal effort. And the reason that they didn't it was because they felt that that fake news story served a higher purpose to delegitimize de the Trump president-elect story, his narrative. And that's why they did it. And that's why people like Brown Brazil or Glenn Thrush wrote uh, to Podesta, because they felt that journalistic ethics were not as important as stopping somebody very illiberal who they felt was a threat to the republic. That's why Rosa Brooks, the Deputy Secretary of Defense today, said she could imagine a military coup in the case of... If I had, if I had written or said that three years ago about Barack Obama when he was doing the Iran deal, I would say this is... Now, I believe it is endangering it, but I would never say it's up to the United States military to consider a coup. That would be at the end of your career. So what I'm saying is that this mainstream media is feels that any means are okay because their aims are so morally and ethically superior. And it's destroyed the reputation of the media, which is down to about 15% of the public believes the media. And uh, I think they, they saw, it started during the Obama administration when he had a, not since FDR did he have that record number of executive orders, many of which contravene constitutional law. And then, in addition, they ended the filibuster. In addition, he said things that were flat-on true about Obamacare. If you want your doc, you can keep it. If you like your health plan, you can keep it. The media was relatively silent. Barack, Donald Trump came in and said, you know what? He's weaponized my candidacy. I can have executive orders. I can say things that aren't true. And you know what? The media has no credibility now because they signed on as agents for the Obama presidency, and that's exactly what happened. So now they're in a position where they're completely discredited. So when I pick up the paper today and I read Glenn Thrush, am I supposed to believe him when I read that? There's no reason why I should because I know that he has colluded with a political campaign and described himself as a hack. If he describes himself as a hack privately, why should I invest well, time in reading anything he says. Well, is, it, is, it, is it the unstated rule, if you send an email that says, don't let this get out because I'll be considered a hack, you just signed your own death warrant. It, it, it's it's going to go out. <laughs> I think that's true. I think that anytime you find a self-descriptive adjective, 
and you confess to that, then nobody's under any compunction not to repeat it because you've defined yourself better than anybody else could. Well, earlier, when I, when I said um, when we were talking about uh, BuzzFeed, and I said straddling the fence, I, I certainly don't mean by I didn't mean by the, the ethical uh, uh, ramifications of, of their work, because I, I, I'm on record as finding it very unethical. Uh, but I'm saying straddling the fence to where BuzzFeed's playing this role of quasi-media. And I, I would say, on the other end, I'd say Breitbart does the same. I'm thinking about the, the Shirley Sherrard. So, well, I'm not media in the same spots, in the same, in the same category, so therefore I get to slide these rules. And, but, but they're seen as I media. Different. I think you're on to something, but I think if you would look at the history of Andrew Breitbart and Steve Bannon, they always considered themselves outlaws and were considered outlaws by the mainstream media. If I'm not mistaken, Ben Smith and others who went to BuzzFeed were not only part of the Washington-New York media nexus, but they had a lot of investors. I think they had several million dollars of uh, media investment money into BuzzFeed. So it was considered an edgy extension of political or something like that, whereas in the case of Breitbart, it was a renegade thing from the beginning. Andrew, I knew Andrew Breitbart, and it was pretty much on a shoestring. Under Steve Bannon, it became much bigger and got the Mercer family to invest in it. But until that point, and I think it's still true that it's, it's like the Drudge Report or the Daily Caller. They, they're not quite part of that New York. I mean, there are Republican conservative National Review, Weekly Standard, Commentary Magazine that are part of that nexus. But I think BuzzFeed is much closer to it than is Breitbart or Drudge or other websites on the right. I guess one of the things that really jumped out at me when I read your piece um, is that uh, it really, what, I guess what, what was concerning for me uh, about reading it uh, was that the fake news phenomenon, however one defines it, does not end with the press. And you, you, you mentioned earlier the, the executive orders by President Obama sort of feel, fuels the Trump agenda in the same way we've seen President Trump now discredit even federal judges, which risk devaluing anything or anyone who has a perspective that's contrarian. I was wondering how you see the phenomenon playing out. Well, I think that's exactly what happened. Remember uh, Barack Obama gave a State of the Union address. It was an attack on Citizens United and mischaracterized the case, so much so that Alito, Judge Alito was in the audience shaking his head, but, and Obama attacked uh, judges for that reason, for the Citizens United case. And in the case of getting rid of the nuclear option, which the Obama administration supported with Terry Reid, uh, using the nuclear option, getting rid of the filibuster. As I said, the executive orders or the idea that the EPA could um, make rather than enforce law or take sanctuary cities, which is an 1860 nullification idea, states' rights of the sort that South Carolina used to, to declare federal law null, null and void within its confines. The Obama administration didn't do anything to that. There's no more successionist or revolutionary act than a municipality like San Francisco saying we are not going to follow federal immigration law to the letter. It would be as if Provo, Utah said, we're not going to follow federal gun registration. Come to Provo, buy a gun, take it the next day or the same day. Or if Cody, Wyoming said, environmental legislation and endangered species act doesn't apply within our city. 
you can imagine the outrage. And yet the Obama administration allowed that to go on and support, indeed supported it. So now we get somebody from the opposite end of the political spectrum, and he looks at the political landscape and he says to himself, wow, I can have 240 or 50 executive orders. I can defy federal law. If a municipality is ideologically akin, they defy, they defy federal law. I guess the president means I don't have to do much. I can say almost anything. We, Trump is crude and buffoonish in his expressions, but if you take away the deliverer and look what Obama had said, Obama, you know, said punish our enemies, get in their faces, bring it down to a knife fight. Uh, I won, elections have consequences. He said it in an academic and soft style, but nevertheless, the message was just as divisive as Trump did. So that's what I meant when I said he's weaponized the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. He's given them tools to fill their agenda, and he's discredited the media because the media is traditionally the watchdog of presidential overreach, but under Obama, they enlisted in that cause, so now people don't believe them when they suddenly turn around and one day filibusters are, you know, I thought they were bad, and now they're good, and executive orders were good, and now they're bad, and, uh, you know, it's Orwellian. It's animal farm. And I think that's the problem right now. The media, nobody's listening to them. You mentioned earlier. You mentioned earlier in our in our conversation uh, that um, how the press has dropped um, in public opinion. Um, the press has dropped dramatically over the years. Um, if everything is is looked at in the public discourse. Uh, through a, I'll just say, for lack of a better word, through a jaundiced eye, especially those stories that don't line with what we already believe. Uh, ultimately, regardless of who's right or who's wrong, can our democratic republic form of government survive, in your view, sir? No, I don't think it can. I think you have to have a disinterested press that has an antagonistic, by nature, not gratuitously so, but an antagon antithetical nature to power. And they have to audit and scrutinize that, and the people in the journalistic community have to be separate from the halls of power, and they can't be part of it. I'm, I'm, I understand that there's marriages, power, Ben Rhodes, the deputy national security valet, his brother was the head of CBS News. Jay Carney, press secretary, was married to foreign correspondent Claire Shipman at CNN. I understand that's how that culture works, but nonetheless, there has to be a distance between the two. In the case of Obama, and not it was not true of George W. Bush, it was true a little bit of Bill Clinton, but in the case of Obama, the press gave up that role and said this is a unique uh, historical milestone, first African-American president, Ivy League, charismatic, young, uh, and we just have to see him succeed. And they did all they could to it. So when the President of the United States, getting back to fake news, gave a speech, for example, in Cairo, which was fake news, he said that the Arab Muslim world was responsible for the Enlightenment. It wasn't. For the Renaissance, it wasn't. He said that Cordoba had been a beacon of Islamic tolerance during the Spanish Inquisition. Spanish Inquisition started in 1492. Cordoba had been ethnically cleansed as the first city liberated the, the uh Reconquista 200 years earlier, so that there wasn't really one Muslim in Cordoba when the Inquisition started. That's fake news. The president did that, and nobody said a word. 
Well, let me ask you because uh, uh, is is it is it fake news because an elected official says it, or is it fake news because uh, no, no investigation? Because it, was a, it was a written speech, a presidential written speech. It wasn't Donald Trump going off on a tangent. It wasn't Barack Obama saying there's 57 states or Barack Obama saying that the Falkland Islands or the Maldives are saying corpsmen for corpsmen. It wasn't any presidential ignorance or slip. It was a written speech that had been drafted. No, I don't, by, I don't, I don't mean by President Obama. I mean, like, yeah. those in the media not... I said, what makes it fake news? That the, the, the media doesn't call them on it? Or yes. they just say it? That's what I'm Not missing. only the media does not call them, but they promulgate its agenda. So that speech was delivered as part of a support for the Muslim Brotherhood, who was now in Egypt on the verge of taking power. And so James Clapper said right after that, the Muslim Brotherhood was largely secular. That was a complete lie. The media bought, bought into that. And before we knew it, we had puff pieces on Mohammed Morsi. And all of us looked at this. Anybody who knew anything about the Middle East was saying, my God, Mohammed Morsi the Muslim Brotherhood are entirely theocratic movements. They're illiberal, they're anti-democratic. If they get into Egypt, they're going to destroy the Constitution, and they're going to cause a coup or a military reaction or a civil war. Anybody knew that, but that was not the media narrative that hand and glove with the administration was, was published. And then after it did happen just like that, then people took a step back and said, my God, we were wrong, and Clapper said I was wrong, et cetera, et cetera. But um, the media also never questioned Susan Rice when she went on five talk shows to insist that the Benghazi tragedy was the result of a spontaneous riot and not a pre-panned Al-Qaeda-like hit. And Susan Rice is just... She, at that time, she was the U.N. ambassador. She later became the national security advisor, but... They went so far as to jail uh, Mr. Nakula, who was a Coptic Egyptian resident on U.S. soil for a trumped-up parole violation, putting him in jail for one year to prove that such punitive action uh, was directed against somebody who had made a video that caused that riot, which was not true. And the media never questioned that narrative. Hmm. And so he served a year in jail. If somebody, any other president had done that, I think they would have been under enormous criticism. We know now that Bo Bergdahl, in the words of Susan Rice, she was a heroic American. That was not true. He was, by all classical definitions, he was a deserter. And he may have helped cause the deaths of two or three Americans who went out to the looking for him. And yet the media, in collusion with the Obama administration, did not uncover that, just like we didn't understand that there had been a pallet with $400 million of cash sent to Iran at night as ransom for hostages. That came out after the Iran deal. And it's not me who's making these accusations. It's Ben Rhodes, the architect of the, and the deputy national security advisor, who said in a very explosive New York Times interview that he had created an echo chamber because journalists, he said, quote-unquote, know nothing. and he, We feed them a narrative. And then they regurgitate the narrative back. And uh, that was just, I mean, that was quite surprising because the people who had helped him, he was deriding for being so malleable. 
I remember that quote, and, and um, I, I remember, and I and it regurgitated when when you cited in your piece. Uh, I guess my question would be: Is that is that um, lazy, bad journalism, lack of curiosity, or is it deliberate fake news? I, I would distinguish. I would distinguish those. I, I, uh, how would you see that? Well, I think that if you had polled the journalistic community, I don't know all of them that fit his definition. He said they're young and they literally know nothing, that they don't go out and investigate stories overseas. They don't have foreign bureaus. I don't know if to me that's accurate, but if you would poll them, most of them approved of the Obama-Iran deal. And that was that fact was known to Ben Rhodes. So when he gave them talking points, how to make that argument, they literally absorbed them and put them out there. They would say they probably did it because they thought it was a good idea. He said they did it because they knew otherwise they had no ability to distinguish truth from falsity. So then we were told certain things about the Iran deal, on-site inspections, all nuclear uh, facilities would be inventoried and inspected. Uh, There would be spot inspections. Later, there were side deals that were revealed that that wasn't quite true. There's some areas that are off limits. You have to notify the Iranians when you want to go and do that. The level of enrichment was much higher than we were told. The sophistication of the centrifuges had improved far more than we were told. But the, the journalistic community did not want to pursue those stories. And I've been cynically said because they were ignorant. I think that's only half the story. But they are also ideologically uh, inclined not to investigate the stories for the higher truth that it would be good to have peace with Iran and uh, not be confrontational. Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, Senior Fellow, Hoover Institution in Palo Alto, California. Thank you, sir, for being on the public Thank round you. today. I enjoyed it. I did too. Thank you. That was Dr. Victor Hansen. Stay tuned as we discuss the Trump administration's seven foreign policy assumptions with Daniel Bynum of the Brookings Institute. Welcome back. When a new presidential administration comes to power, it creates a new set of challenges, some based on the worldview of the new president and his team, while others are unforeseen. My next guest, Daniel Bynum, Senior fellow at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C., joins me to discuss what he sees as the seven Trump foreign policy assumptions. Daniel Bynum, welcome to the public morality. Thank you for having me. I wanted to have you on to discuss uh, your excellent piece that that can be found on the Brookings Institute website entitled uh, Seven Trump Foreign Foreign Policy Assumptions. And I thought the best way to proceed is we initially, let's just uh, take those seven assumptions and um, just sort of articulate them one by one, if we would. Uh, why don't we start with why is the term radical Islam important? The Trump administration comes in believing that Obama refused to call the enemy by its name and that instead of uh, saying the Islamic State or al-Qaeda, that it should be radical Islam, that it transcends any particular group, and that the Obama administration was being politically correct and refusing to use Islam because it didn't want to offend people, and that led to a fundamental miscalculation. Um, uh, A fundamental miscalculation on on the Obama administration's part? Uh, That would be the argument of the Trump people. Right, right, right. 
All right. Uh, as, 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 we're, as, we're, as we're going forward, um, Russia, uh, uh, I mean, it's one of the assumptions. I'm, I'm, I'm going to skip with Russia. I'm sorry. Um, do you worry that that sort of talk promotes fear, radical Islam? Uh, absolutely. What it does is you go from a, a small group of truly dangerous people who want to kill us and we should go after to a broader religion. It's very unclear what radical means, but it is very clear what Islam means. So it ends up demonizing Muslims and often Muslims who simply might disagree with U.S. policy, but who don't embrace violence. So this label isn't completely wrong. It, the problem does transcend particular groups. But at the same time, the label risks being so broad, not just to be meaningless, but actually quite dangerous. Do you see that, uh, some of that in the recent um, executive order by the president, um, which many conclude um, is a, is a, a ban, a temporary ban on Muslims uh, entering uh, the country? I know some people would articulate it differently. Do you see that promoting that type of fear that you just articulated? Uh, absolutely. This is a good example of uh, trying to deal with a real problem, which is that terrorist groups might want to send people to the United States. But using such a broad brush and an inaccurate one, that it uh, affects you know hundreds of thousands of people, uh, very, very few of any of these people are actually linked to terrorist groups. And instead, you have a common denominator is that there are Muslim, people from Muslim countries that have a terrorism problem. And these are ironically people who tend to hate terrorism more than anyone because they know firsthand how horrible it is. But, but there's, a, there's an irony in that, that just if, if you look at where, as people have articulated already, where the, uh, most of the uh, perpetrators of 9-11, uh, those came from countries that are, are at least ostensibly our allies for the most part, and, and, and none of those were included on this ban. Uh, that's absolutely right. That the ban seemed to single out some countries, again, that do have a real terrorism problem, but not that were the ones uh, linked to 9-11. And 9-11 was repeatedly invoked in the executive order that President Trump issued. So it seemed to kind of miss the nature of the problem. And to go further, the biggest problem since 9-11 has not been foreigners coming into the United States, but a small group of radicalized Muslims who were born in the United States. And all this ban does is make that problem worse because it sends a message that this administration is hostile to Islam. Mm-hmm. Uh, explain to us, I'm, I'm going to go to another uh, point that you made in your, in your piece. Explain to us, if you would, um, why public opinion matters uh, on, foreign, on foreign policy. Why is that important? Well, public opinion matters for several reasons. Uh, one is that Every government around the world has to deal with its own people. And we saw this recently with Mexico, where the uh, Trump's call to build a wall and demand that Mexico pay for it led to outrage among Mexicans and made it very hard for the Mexican leader to cooperate with the United States or even visit the United States, despite the overwhelming connections between the two countries. Now let's go one step further and go to countries where the United States might have you know, much worse relations. Uh, you know, many countries in the Muslim world, for example. Already, leaders pay a stiff price when they want to cooperate openly with the United States. And so when they are alienated further, it makes it harder for them to do what the United States wants. And this is very important for counterterrorism because many of these countries, it's their military forces, it's their intelligence operatives, it's their people who are on the line. And the United States wants them to fight. That's very important. 
and by alienating public opinion, we're making it harder for ourselves. Uh, as I was, I was listening to your last response, uh, I'm just I was just wondering, uh, could it be that this president um, is the exception to that kind of thinking? Because if you at least early on, uh, public opinion, uh, I, I would even add his his own uh, Republican-led Congress is not an important part of his decision-making process. At least it seems that way. Uh, my sense is that he cares about a relatively narrow base within the United States and not much else. And so if you're outside that, whether it's a more moderate Republican or a Democrat or a foreigner, uh, that opinion doesn't matter much to him. Well, on, on the foreign policy terrain, though, it, it, it's, it's hard to lead um, in excess of 300 billion people being concerned only by a narrow slice. Is, is, it, is it not? Uh, absolutely. That this is something that uh, you, you want uh, the U.S. president to be president of the whole country, the whole United States, and then you want the United States to be the leader of the free world. And when you define your constituency so narrowly and openly make clear you don't care about others, both those roles become impossible. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Daniel Bynum, senior fellow with the Brookings Institute for Middle East Policy, um, who wrote a wonderful piece and on, that you can find on the Brookings Institute website entitled Seven Trump Foreign Policy Assumptions. Uh, continuing, uh, one of the assumptions that you wrote about is that uh, is it in these fledgling stages of, of, of the Trump administration that um, U.S. allies overrated. And, uh, and that, that sort of, to me, reflects a real nationalistic impulse. That's correct. Uh, his sense that we saw during the campaign was he questioned the value of the U.S. military presence in Asia. He questioned the value of NATO, America's most important alliance. And in general, his sense, at least rhetoric, was that allies are freeloading off the United States. The United States is doing all the work, and they are contributing nothing. And he has uh, tried, I don't know if deliberately, but often uh, made this worse as president, where his um, people he's appointed to the European Union, for example, have talked about breaking up the European Union. And in general, he doesn't seem to value um, traditional U.S. alliances. And since, you, since you mentioned the, the European Union, um, explain to our listeners um, what breaking what the impact for America would be if if, if that alliance was broken. Well, the European Union is a um, a source of I'll say peace and prosperity in Europe. It's helped bring Europeans together after the devastation of World War II, and it's made all the individual countries much richer collectively. And attempts to break it up both put the United States as a, as a spoiler to some of its best friends. It's like going to your friends and trying to make them fight each other or make them poorer. Uh, but also it risks creating competition where it doesn't need to exist. Um, something that would amaze people you know, 60 years ago is the idea that Germany and France are close allies. And Trump seems to think that's a bad thing and that we should be trying to increase divisions within Europe. In addition to that, that you also alluded to, um, he's looking at, possibly looking at uh, Russia being a natural partner, which is certainly the antithesis of the last uh, 60-some years. <laughs> uh, that's correct. And it's coming at a very surprising time when, in the last few years, Russia has been very aggressive. So it's supported the Syrian dictatorship. It's uh, annexed uh, the Crimea. It has... 
uh, sent covert military forces into Ukraine. And in general, it's been extremely aggressive. So it's a force not for peace but for instability. And to cozy up to it now, it, to me, sends exactly the wrong signal uh, to the Russians and to our allies. And that's something that Trump is doing not only in opposition to the Obama administration's policy, but also in opposition to most Republicans who in the past were criticizing Obama as being too soft on Russia. And so this is something that is really not popular on both sides of the political aisle. And, and, and following up, explain um, to our listeners, um, um, you, you, one of your uh, assumptions that you wrote was Israel could do what it wants. I mean, it's certainly our most reliable ally uh, and our most treasured ally in the region. What did you mean by Israel could do what it wants? Well, the United States um, historically has, of course, always had a pro-Israel policy, and I think that's appropriate. But pro-Israel doesn't mean that you endorse every single decision Israel makes for better or for worse. But the Trump administration seems to be pushing Israel in a direction that uh, in the past many Israelis have actually been skeptical of. So the new ambassador has called for increasing settlements in the West Bank, so taking more territory away from Palestinians. The administration has been very skeptical of renewing peace talks. So this is uh, not just standing by a friend, which the United States has always done, but really saying to the friend, you can do whatever you want, even if it's stupid, and we'll encourage it. And to me, that um, extreme position is a mistake. The United States needs to stand for its own interests and recognize that uh, pushing Israel in certain directions is in the interest of the United States. Um, you touched on it. I would like for you to expand, if you would. Ex- ex- explain to our listeners, if you would, um, what the expansion of uh, the settlements in the West Bank really means. The assumption for many years was that there would be two states side by side eventually. There would be a Jewish state of Israel and there would be a Palestinian state next door. And most of the Palestinian state would be in the West Bank. And this area has um, some areas where um, Jewish settlers from Israel have, have moved. And the goal of past administrations was to try to decrease that number, to try to separate the populations, to make it easier to create that split. But something that Trump has talked about is trying to increase the number of settlements, or at least his ambassador, excuse me, and try to have more settlements. And that would make it harder eventually to split things up because there are going to be people whose lives and whose homes are in the West Bank. And once they're there, the facts on the ground make it much harder for them to go back to Israel. Now, uh, I'm certainly not a foreign policy expert, but it seems to me that would just ensure what you just articulated, perennial tension in the region. Uh, that's right. Now, let's be clear. The tension's already there. Yes. No, no, no. But, so absolutely, just, yes. Just to be fair yes. to the Trump folks. But yes. at the same time, the, the hope is that, you know, not this year, maybe not next year, but at some point a deal can be worked out, and this is moving in the opposite direction. Uh, what about uh, the rough stuff works? One thing that Trump has talked about uh, repeatedly is that he believes torture works. He's called for kind of very aggressive measures against suspected terrorists that um, Obama and even Bush before him moved away from. And Trump's sense seems to be that these programs need to be renewed and invigorated, and that as a result, he is, um, you know, he has instructed people to consider, um, for example, um, instructed the intelligence community to consider um, detaining people again. Um, and this is a question of whether these things ever worked in the first place. 
But this is a profound shift away from Obama, who very much rejected these and was encouraging others to do so as well. Now, this, again, doesn't mean Trump is inherently wrong. I think the verdict is still out on a number of these things. But the general American consensus has been torture in particular does not work. And at the very least, uh, whatever limited results it produces, um, it backfires in terms of damaging the reputation of the United States and hurting our ability to kind of be the moral leader of the world. And Trump seems to be moving away from this view that this is um, that these uh, tactics are, are wrong for the United States. And, and to your earlier point uh, about his focus being that uh, a narrow slice of, of the electorate, um, this decision in particular, and I'm thinking of uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, Senator John McCain, puts him in tension with, with pe- members of his own party. That's absolutely correct. This is something that uh, Senator McCain, I would say, in particular, really led the fight against torture in the Bush administration. And as a former POW who had been tortured, he has tremendous moral authority. And this is something that um, I would have thought this debate had been settled, but apparently not. Um. And finally, uh, tough, pol- uh, tough policy makers uh, make tough policy. Wow, that, that sounds like John Wayne right there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, here the idea is, uh, as, is as you know, uh, Trump has put into uh, senior civilian positions a lot of generals. So whether it's running the National Security Council, running the Department of Defense, um, running a host of other agencies, Homeland Security, um, the senior person is often a former general. And the assumption is, you know, these are legitimately tough people, and therefore they'll be tough on the bad guys, whoever those are. Uh, the reality, though, is going to be a lot more complex. If you look at someone like General Mattis at Defense or General Kelly at Homeland Security, these are people who know firsthand how horrible war can be for the United States. And they won't hesitate if they feel U.S. interests are threatened to be very aggressive. But at the same time, they're not going to rush into things foolishly. Uh, they tend to have a lot of um, respect for the rule of law. They tend to be very supportive of U.S. alliances. And I think we're going to see some very firm pushback uh, from these generals who I think many people assume wrongly are simply going to be kind of aggressive and mindless people when it's going to be quite the opposite. Hmm. You, you know, when I was listening to you articulate the assumption, I, I, I hearken back to um, almost going back uh, to a ch- uh, what Charles Lindbergh, uh, uh, America first, sort of a non-interventionist effort. Uh, is that is that where we're headed? Uh, I, almost openly, Trump seems to be evoking that era where the United States really does not have many interests in engaging with the world, and when it does, it's going to do so in a way that is entirely about U.S. interests and not much else. But what that era to me clearly produced was a recognition that U.S. security and world security go together. The United States can't watch other countries collapse into um, into civil war, into severe economic problems, into outright war without having some impact on its own security. And at times that can be severe. Well, you, you sort of already touched on my last question, but I, but I can see at least a slice of America right now saying, well, uh, uh, Daniel Biden, we, we just can't carry the water anymore for Japan, for Germany, for South Korea. So what's wrong with that? First of all, um, of course the United States should not be carrying the water for the world, but these countries do a tremendous amount. These countries host U.S. forces. These countries have their own militaries. They're active in fighting terrorist groups. So allies do contribute, and they contribute tremendously. And if 
the United States wants to protect its economy, if the United States wants to fight terrorism, it's going to have to work with its friends. And to me, of course, you want these people on your side. Daniel Bynum, Senior Fellow, Brookings Institute. Uh, thank you, sir, for being on the Public Rally today. My pleasure. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. The Public Morality is currently in a campaign drive. If you wish to contribute, go to GoFundMe.com and then search Public Morality. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.